also to uh, the other co-conveners uh, of uh, the PIL discussion group and the ELAC discussion group, uh, and in addition uh, to uh, Professor Dakwa Kande and uh, Professor Catherine Redfield, who I think have also uh, been part of extending this invitation to us. It's really a pleasure to be here. Uh, we are going to proceed as follows. Um, I think uh, Rebecca will take the floor first to outline uh, some of the key dimensions of the paper, and I will follow up with uh, uh, some points that she doesn't address. Uh, we hope to be able to speak for 30, 35 minutes and then to have as much time as possible for questions. So uh, I'll hand over directly to Rebecca. Thanks a lot, Nihal, and uh, I join myself to your thanks. We are delighted to be here and to see also some familiar faces uh, in the audience. Uh, thanks everyone for for joining. Um, so the the context. Oh, I cannot share my screen in the end. Uh, if you, uh, I I guess if I am co-host, then uh, this solves the issue. Yes, I think you're now the co-host. Thank you so much. Okay, great. So the the context of the um, of the paper is um, that of counterterrorism since 9/11 and uh, the practice of uh, targeted killings of suspected terrorists. Um, as you know, the development of the US targeted killing uh, practice um, and, and the drone program is a process that has consolidated over, over time and that has been stabilized through the creation of bureaucratic infrastructures, but also um, through a highly legalistic mode of uh, justification that has influenced also um, allies to adopt similar practices and similar legal narratives, um, the UK and France on, on some aspects of it. So today what has uh, what was initially um, a tactic has arguably become thoroughly normalized as the means to pursue extended military strategy against certain Islamist groups. So we take uh, at the basis of this paper, which is part of a collected um, volume, collective volume uh, in honor of Philip Elston, we, we start uh, with his uh, intuition in 2010 and his report when he was UN Special Rapporteur on targeted killings um, that uh, there is a displacement of clear legal standards with a vaguely defined license to kill and the creation of a major accountability vacuum. So for, for this normalization to happen that I was mentioning for, for starters, a handful of states have uh, navigated the semantic frame of certain legal concepts. And here in this paper, we focus on the right of self-defense um, so the US, Australia, uh, the UK and France interpretation of the right of self-defense, what we call in the paper, the revisionist framework, leads to a troubling situation where the norm is reconfigured and where it hardly regulates uh, conduct if we follow this revisionist framework. In the paper, we distinguish ourselves from the view that the revisionist framework departs from the old days where the law was allegedly certain, that is uh, when the law required a high threshold of effective control, for instance, by the territorial state over the non-state armed group. 
And instead, and this will be developed uh, by Professor Buta, we build on uh, Robert Brendam's Hegelian account of the determinateness of, of legal concepts to identify the revisionist framework as a, a, a concept of self-defense that is historically uh, embedded. Uh, so in this chapter, we show that these conceptual revisions bring with them a reconfiguration of the structure of legal relationships uh, presupposed by the use at Bellum's uh, concept of uh, proportionality and a new determinacy, uh, which renders the concept more per permissive than constraining. So before delving into this conceptual analysis of the evolution of how norms content is determined with Nihal, I want to share with you the recollective stories of the right of self-defense that we trace in the paper before reaching the way it is framed uh, today, what we call the revisionist framework, uh, which is a chain we show uh, of interconnected uh, propositions. And uh, of course, a disclaimer for starters, uh, we do not claim that the revisionist framework is the law as it stands. It's not at all the, the goal of the paper, but uh, we, we claim that uh, uh, it is fair to say that it participates in the blurring and expansion of the boundaries uh, and application of the legal framework, uh, that it has supported and normalized uh, drone wars, and it's fair to say, at least in some aspects and on some parts of the revisionist framework, that it is supported by some scholarly work, but also uh, by other states like the UK, Australia and, and France. Uh, and we show that um, this chain of propositions is a chain of interconnected and interdependent propositions that affect one another uh, as a cascade effect, through a cascade effect. So to, to guide you through this chain of propositions, for starters, uh, we have a rationale personnel limitation in this revisionist framework that includes armed, attack, uh, armed attacks perpetrated by non-state actors with the loose link of attribution uh, that the host state is unwilling or unable to address the threat posed by uh, these non-state actors. This we show has a, a direct incidence on the rationale materiel limitation of self-defense as this first move towards unwilling and able invites us to include the modes of action of these specific non-state actors. One which is said to be dispersed and difficult to visualize and uh, anticipate. At least we, we, we consider that this led states to articulate an extensive version of the accumulation doctrine, uh, one that goes beyond the accumulation doctrine defined uh, according to which a, a series of minor incidents taken together uh, can be said to reach the threshold of an armed attack. Uh, the, the revisionist framework uh, proposes that we can infer from a series of past events that the threatening group um, carries or has the capacity and intention to carry future attacks. This second step also has an impact on the rationale temperance limitation of self-defense and um, brings us to move towards not imminence in the restrictive sense that, um, as you know, the threat is 
uh, instant, uh, overwhelming, leaving no choice of means and no moment of deliberation, but towards a permanent imminence of the threat derived from, again, this series of past events that tell the, tells us that uh, members of a group pose a continuing imminent threat. This, of course, um, in the last instance, also has a direct effect uh, on the rationale con conditionist limitations of self-defense um, necessity and proportionality. In fact, um, the cascade effect we consider culminates into a metamorphosis uh, of those limitations of self-defense. So the, the temporal and material changes that we describe of self-defense automatically transform what is meant by necessity and proportionality. So in other words, if there is no identified armed attack in relation to which a material test of proportionality can be conducted, uh, then the test is de facto Im impossible uh, to conduct. So a change from a material use of self-defense to halt uh, and repel an identified uh, attack to an individualized self-defense, one that aims to eliminate an individual opposing a continuing imminent threat, means that the requirements of necessity and proportionality are not just affected in scope like, like the other steps that we went through together, the three first ones, but in nature. So the principle of, of proportionality, rather than being a test of whether the, the threatened state uh, had no other means to halt uh, the, the attack other than the recourse to this scale of armed force, is a test where this scale of armed force was, let's say, the only means to weaken uh, the, the, the group or diminish or halt the threat. Uh, more generally posed by the group or uh, the individual as part of this group. So when navigating through recent literature on the right of self-defense, as uh, Christian Tam, Tams recently noted, actually, we get the wrong impression uh, that there used to be a clear um, and certain interpretation of the relevance concepts application in the past and that um, this revisionist framework departs from it. So this allegedly certain in interpretation is, as I said, one where a high threshold of effective control by the territorial state over the non-state armed group used to be necessary to give rise uh, to a right to use force against non-state uh, armed group on the territorial state's territory. Here, we distinguish ourselves from this assumption of, of truth or uncertainty, and we argue that certain stories about the content of self-defense are, if not certain in a transcendental manner, at least stable at certain points in time. So we call it revisionist not because it deconstructs the correct unique version of self-defense, but because it's the product of a historical change, a departure from the right of self-defense as framed by Brownlee when he writes in 1963. So, when, when Brownlee is writing in, in 1963, uh, in the aftermath of the Suez crisis, he aims with his limitationist view to articulate a version of the right of self-defense 
that comes as an alternative proposition to the right of self-defense as fulfilling projects of self-preservation. So even if Brownlee is clearly open for argument, and this we, we describe in the paper, whether certain elements of self-preservation still con continue, it is fair to say, in our view, that his interpretation crystallizes as a stable one in the politics of decolonization. So in that context, uh, Brownlee articulates the different limitations uh, of self-defense and puts particular emphasis on the principle of proportionality as he frames it uh, in a way that allows him to differentiate uh, precisely the use of self-defense, uh, the use of force in self-defense from the use of force in self-preservation. Um, I, I think Nihal will say more about this, but uh, I can mention briefly at this stage that his argument uh, there rests uh, on an intuition that proportionality essentially rests on the uh, symmetry of state-to-state uh, -state, uh, interactions. So as such, a, another limitation he uses uh, to constrain the right of self-defense is the high threshold of connection, as I mentioned before, between the non-state armed group and the territory. And this high threshold, we continue the, what we call the recollective story, is what Brownlee pushes for as a council in Nicaragua. So this does not mean that his version of the right of self-defense was the only one available. We recall in that regard uh, Bowett's conflicting version of it, but it is the one that became prominent at this specific point in time, reflected in the efforts over um, two decades to promote sovereign equality and to remove the colonialism and imperialist color from norms of IHL efforts that culminated in Nicaragua. Uh, in the Nicaragua decision rendered in 1986. In post-Nicaragua decision, Brownlee's limitation is view accepted by the ACJ, uh, faced alternative currents uh, that we also go through in our narration of these recollective stories until we finally uh, reach the point where we describe the revisionist framework. So to, to talk about recollective stories um, is a way in a sense, to reframe the discussion on these evolutions and the different interpretations of the norm available. So once you start to assemble these stories, we see that new circumstances lead to new determinations, uh, which create new possibilities. And this is what we will uh, conceptually explore now uh, by focusing with Nihal uh, on Brownlee's intuition within the Brandom frame, Nihal. The floor is yours. Thank you. So thank you very much, Rebecca. Um, so uh, let me, I suppose, try to uh, step back a little bit uh, from uh, the very uh, um, sort of helpful uh, laying out of the argument that, that Rebecca has undertaken and try to uh, maybe put our finger on what we're trying to do in this paper by using these particular uh, theoretical ideas. Um, so as Rebecca has said, we, we try to set up a, a basic uh, comparison distinction uh, between something called the revisionist framework and what came before it. Um, and the revisionist framework uh, is, a, is a label. It's not something that we think is the state of the law. It's a label we give to a constellation or a network of arguments 
um, which when you put them all together, uh, first of all, uh, uh, seek to rework the legal content of some concepts that are already with us, armed attack, um, attribution, um, etc., um, uh, self-defense, imminence. Uh, and in addition to that, uh, they seem in an interesting way, if you look at them as they work as a set of arguments, they, in an interesting way they seem to uh, generate new possibilities as to what can be subsumed under concepts like imminence or uh, attribution. So in laying that out, what we're trying to get at here is, uh, first of all, the, the relationship between these concepts and the kinds of reasons that we can use when we argue about whether the concept applies or doesn't apply. That's what the use that we try to make of the work of Robert Brandom. So the, the theoretical point in this paper, we sort of had a broad brushed historical claim about uh, how to think about the emergence of what we might call now the certainty of old. Um, and we, we show that to be uh, essentially a historical process whereby a range of possibilities that were by no means eliminated by the charter in 1945 in terms of the concept of the content of the content of the concept of self-defense uh, remained available to uh, states in framing their reasons for the use of force uh, but that in the period between 1960 and 1975 uh, there was a uh, a process by which some of these available reasons were narrowed or eliminated from the content of the concepts. And Brownlee uh, was not singularly responsible for this, but rather he's an interesting example of someone whose arguments uh, were very much in sync uh, with what was a uh, uh, sort of epoch-making redefinition, legal redefinition uh, and reshaping of uh, um, the framework governing the use of force, essentially through the, uh, the political process of the General Assembly and the activism of the, uh, the, the nascent Third World Bloc uh, between 1960 and 1975. And we trace that through in the paper. So our point, you know, our basic point here is if you, try to, if you wish to try to understand um, something of the origins of uh, 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 the Nicaragua style test for uh, attribution and effective control, um, the notion that a uh, non-state actor only provides uh, a casus belli in the event that it's attributable to uh, a state, uh, one needs to retrace the process by which uh, alternative arguments were evacuated from uh, the concept. Uh, and this didn't happen all at once. As we know, it's not clearly there uh, as a matter of treaty law, um, but rather it reflects uh, transformed politics of international relations, the politics of uh, the membership in particular of the United Nations, and a legal politics in which these terms were subjected to fairly lengthy uh, and sometimes quite uh, onerous processes of discussion and negotiation uh, in, in, and, and redefinition in ultimately non-binding documents, but documents that, that carried quite a bit of normative force uh, and became in some ways uh, uh, touchstones for uh, the articulation of notions such as aggression and uh, armed attack. So 
what the, the broad strokes of what we're trying to point out is um, what uh, is in some sense evacuated from uh, some of these concepts uh, as a matter of usage uh, in the period 1960 to 1975 and reaching a kind of crystallization with Nicaragua in 1986 uh, are not thereby banished for all time. Uh, they remain available to states, uh, but they're highly marginal. Um, and those of us who, who have some familiar with this similarities know the stories of states that have attempted to invoke uh, the right of self-defense directly against non-state actors, invoking an unwilling and unable test. Uh, that is something that does happen between uh, 1965 and 1990. It's just that overwhelmingly it's met with rejection by other states as being incompatible with the content of the concept. Um, and a sort of emblematic instance of this is the state's reactions to uh, uh, Israel's attack on the PLO in Tunisia in 1986. Um, however, uh, the story we're telling is, is, suggests that uh, what happens after 1989 is a, a rehabilitation, a re-emergence of these threads uh, available contents of these concepts, um, uh, which uh, uh, which starts to develop incrementally uh, in ways that have been well documented, for example, by Christian Tams, um, and and then accelerate uh, in after 2001 and the attacks of September 11, and in 2001 uh, and moving forward. In fact, what you see is uh, not just sort of the resurfacing of various arguments uh, about uh, uh, about the conditions under which one might strike a non-state actor uh, in the absence of attributability to another state. Um, but what we see is in some sense their uh, radicalization uh, into what we call highly extensive uh, and permissive uh, concepts uh, under, under, under the revisionist idea. So that's the broad sort of uh, uh, landscape of the argument we're trying to make, and I, I just wanted to, to we have a sort of seven or eight pages, rather dense, in the frame in the in the paper uh, about Robert Brandom, um, and I suppose what I wanted to address in my remarks about this is is really just to sort of situate the utility of this as a, a set of cons a set of uh, theories that help us understand perhaps what we're seeing, and that's the spirit in which we use Brandom. Um, you know, first and foremost. Uh, uh, the basic intuition of, of, of Random and his work is a pragmatic one, that uh, the determinateness the, the, of a concept, that is, uh, the, the way in which we know what is within the application of a concept and what is outside the application of a concept, uh, is a function of its use in history. Right? So no concepts are inherently determinate and clear um, ex ante. And that's true in the natural sciences as it is in the social sciences or in law. Um, the, uh, uh, the, uh, the, um, uh, um, the um, uh, uh, concepts are, uh, are given their boundaries. In other words, the, uh, the conditions under which we uh, can know whether they legitimately apply or properly apply to a factual situation or not. Uh, uh, through the, user, the, the range of uses uh, that is available uh, uh, to the, the person who's applying them. Right? So determinateness, the, the boundaries of a concept, are a function of its, uh, 
uh, use in history. Uh, but at the same time, it's not reducible to its use in history. And I think this is an important distinction uh, for those of you who follow these fairly arcane debates in, uh, um, uh, in uh, the sort of theory of, of, of language. Um, you know, one of the questions about the relativity of meaning to historical use um, is, well, does that mean that the concept applies or the boundaries of the concept are simply given whenever uh, 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 the historical practice changes, right? So it's, it's always relative to history, in which case, uh, you know, an, an extreme version of this is as soon as the community's uses, use changes, uh, then the meaning of the concept changes. Uh, and in some sense, the, the, the meaning is fundamentally indeterminate. Um, the value, I think, for our argument in Brandom's framework is that it creates uh, something of a, uh, 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 something of a, a distance between uh, history and meaning. It says in the first instance, the space of reasons that's available to us in uh, uh, the use of a concept is ultimately given by usage, by history, by uh, the historical circumstances in which we find ourselves. No, no meaning is given uh, ex ante and transcendentally. But at the same time, once we start to use a concept uh, and we start to use a concept, uh, uh, we, we necessarily have to start applying it uh, in terms of what is included and what is excluded, what is an extension of the concept as a matter of inference and what is incompatible with the concept as a matter of inference. And um, this logical relationship, which is connected to the semantics of the concept, um, <clears throat> is in some sense, <clears throat> pardon me, um, uh, not completely reducible uh, to its any given historical use. Right? So uh, for our purposes, Brandon is interesting essentially for to, to underline two points that if you wish to understand the space of reasons that is available to you when you are using a concept um, it's not really very useful uh, to go to pure logical relationships spaces of spaces of uh, concepts are spaces of reasons and that's endowed to us by history right? by the moment we are in time at the same time as we act in a moment to apply a concept it's not an infinite variety of historical possibility. Right? It's not whatever we choose uh, to do with the uh, concept at that moment, but rather the boundaries of the concept are in some sense shaped also by the logical possibilities of the concept. And those logical possibilities rest on concrete uh, relationships that are given to us uh, by the circumstances in which we use the concept. So all of this is to say that um, the value in our estimation, the, the utility, the usefulness, we're not, we're not sort of interested in being, um, uh, you might say, analyzing Brandom for his own sake as a, what I think is a very profound theory of both language and knowledge, but rather he does seem to us to have some particular uh, utility in helping us to clarify a little bit the dynamic that we've observed in the logical development, in the conceptual development, uh, of some key concepts in the use of force uh, over the last 50 years or so. <clears throat> and it, it perhaps helps us figure out or understand better uh, the consequences of the shift that we are, uh, that we are seeing. 
Of course, one way of, of talking about this shift, which, which many uh, have, have made, is to say, well, of course, uh, Nicaragua was always somewhat arbitrary. There's no necessity that, uh, that use, the use of force should be restricted only against a state actor or a non-state actor attributable to a state. And this was a kind of mistake that, that Nicaragua engaged in uh, at some point. The alternative uh, position uh, is, uh, well, no, uh, uh, Nicaragua reflects uh, uh, the true intentions of what the use of force framework was meant to achieve um, and therefore must be defended uh, against this revisionist change. Uh, in our view, both of these are just different ways of giving a recollective story about the concept and about its content. Um, but what they both miss in a way um, is the conditions under which one version of the concept seemed to become determinate and then the conditions under which it's lost its determinacy of that kind and is, is achieving a new determinacy, uh, which is the, uh, that which is, uh, seems available through the revisionist framework. And one of the things we highlight, we, 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 have, we highlight many aspects about the revisionist framework and the ways in which it turns imminence into a permanent state, the ways in which it focuses on the sort of subjective characteristics of individuals as uh, the foundation of whether they are a threat and whether they amount to an imminent threat of an armed attack. Um, uh, and and we, we show that this re results in quite a few changes in how we think about the application of these concepts uh, uh, and even uh, indeed their, their uh, accessibility to us as, a, uh, uh, as, as, as something that can be scrutinized in light of evidence. Uh, but one of the things we point to uh, in particular is the, the ways in which this uh, concept, uh, 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 the, the implications of the revisionist concept is in relation to use ad bellum proportionality. Um, so we might say that what we're tracing is the shift from a symmetrical use ad bellum to an asymmetrical use ad bellum. Uh, and the implication of the asymmetrical use ad bellum uh, seems to us uh, to be uh, important and significant um, in that the, uh, the, uh, the presuppositions of the application of proportionality have uh, changed. Now, Rebecca has pointed out that in his 1963 work, Brownlee is quite puzzled by, uh, uh, by the application of proportionality to attacks uh, against non-state actors. Um, and he doesn't really explain why he's puzzled, but he seems to think that, uh, and he, said, he certainly says in the text, <clears throat> that um, attacking a non-state actor where that actor is not attributable to a state um, cannot be proportionate. Um, now, of course, at one level, this is hard to make any sense of. And one, if one thinks of proportionality as just the balance between means and ends, uh, between uh, the harm you wish to prevent and the harm you wish to, uh, and the harm you need to inflict, there's no reason, it seems to me, why it cannot be uh, uh, proportionate. But that's, I don't think, Br uh, Brownlee's point. Brownlee's intuition seems to be that proportionality is not purely about the balancing of harms in material damage. It's also about the balancing of rights, right? the right of uh, a territorial sovereign against another. That's part of the calculus uh, about whether the infringement on the territory of the other state as an equal sovereign, as an equal legal person, is justified. Um, and I think the perplexity or the logical problem he seems to have is that a non-state actor 
which is in not some sense attributable to the personality of a sovereign equal, the state, uh, has no rights, actually. They have no rights as a corpus. They have no rights as a legal person. The, the individuals might have rights as criminals or as, in, as, as, uh, as uh, they might have human rights, but these are not on the same order of the rights of sovereigns, which can be balanced against each other. Um, so our, uh, I mean, this, in this sense, and this is our reading of Brownlee, is that his, his, his discussion of proportionality reflects this, this puzzle. Um, and he ultimately concludes that um, uh, while uh, there could be circumstances in which a non-state actor, you know, it could be legitimate use force against a non-state actor, he finds it very difficult to understand, to consider conditions under which that would be proportionate, except where the non-state actor is attributable to a state. So if we move forward to the present, to the, um, uh, the, um, the, the revisionist framework, <coughs> what strikes us about that framework um, uh, is, in a sense, precisely because it has effectively dispensed with the, the, the strong requirement of uh, attribution, uh, it gives rise to what's sometimes known as the innocent state problem. Um, uh, in a way, uh, the innocent state problem is a reflection of a deeper issue, which is uh, what is it concretely that sets boundaries to uh, uh, the extent of the use of force against a threat? What limits are there? We know that proportionality is a limiting concept, but contains within it no clear boundaries uh, as to, uh, it, it's a highly flexible concept of limitation. When we apply the concept of proportionality to an interstate conflict, uh, there's some sense in, in which we know how to reason our way through, uh, or the way in which we reason our way through, uh, is dependent and or is closely connected to the fact that we are speaking of two equal sovereigns with equal rights under international law. Um, and the implication of that is interesting if you think it through. Under what conditions is it proportionate to pursue a conflict against a state in self-defense to the extent that it requires the complete overthrow of that state's government and uh, the destruction of its military capacity so that it can no longer pose a threat to you. Now, this is not ruled out by proportionality in international law. We know that. However, it's interesting to observe the conditions we attach to the, to, uh, the circumstances in which that would be proportionate. It, it involves a kind of uh, limit case where uh, a government is so inimically hostile, not just in an ideological sense, but in a sense of constantly threatening you and seeking to destroy you, under those conditions, it's conceivable that a proportionate response would be invasion, regime change. Um, but it's the outer limit of uh, what would be considered proportional uh, in an interstate conflict. And we often know that, and we know from observance, that proportionality is often used to say, well, it was, it was acceptable to go this far into the territory and to, uh, to respond in this way, but it was not acceptable to go another 60 miles uh, in order to seize uh, control over uh, a greater portion of the territory uh, because there was, it was not obvious that the threat would, uh, would, would justify that. And so in some sense, it gives us parameters, territorial parameters, and these territorial parameters or parameters about uh, the extent of damage reflect not a mere weighing of material harms, but some sense in which to what extent are you allowed to breach or uh, 
to intrude upon the equal rights, the sovereign equal rights of territory, of political sovereignty, of independence of that other state in order to, in order to uh, defend yourself against the threat that they pose. What's interesting, I think, in the way in which we talk about proportionality under the, what's, let's call it the asymmetrical uh, Yossad Bellum, um, is that the concrete sense in which there are limitations seems to be much harder uh, to determine if they are determinable at all. Um, and in the paper, we cite some examples, both from French practice, but also from uh, the Americans, which, uh, which points to the fact that the, uh, the complete destruction of the military capacity of the non-state armed group is considered to be, and maybe it is, uh, uh, a proportionate end which can be pursued, um, because it's, con it's, considered, it's concerned to be necessary to contain the harm. Uh, that is posed, or the risk of harm that is posed by those groups. Um, strikingly, as I said, that's a limit case in the interstate conflict, uh, but it seems to be the central case, or the normal case, um, in the way in which we're starting to think about uh, uh, the, uh, the concept of proportionality in uh, 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 this asymmetrical jus ad bellum. Um, now, First, so I guess one of our points about this is that's interesting and we should think about it, right? To what extent is proportionality no longer a limiting device but a permissive device which greatly extends uh, the scope of uh, continuous uh, intensive violence in the territory of another state in the name of uh, debilitating or permanently disabling a non-state armed group operating from that state? Um, uh, and, and in a sense, is, that, is the limit of that proportionality really simply the destruction of that capacity? Well, that's, that to us does seem like the recipe for a forever war, uh, because ultimately non-state armed groups can never be completely destroyed, uh, particularly if they, they partly derive their, uh, uh, their um, viability through various kinds of political support. Right? So ultimately, at that point, you need a political strategy, not a military one. Um, the second element of that, though, which is interesting uh, to think about, I think, is um, uh, if that's plausible, if that's sort of something that seems right, that, that there is this differentiation between what proportionality might mean in relation to a non-state group and what it might mean in relation to a state, does that tell us something interesting about the presuppositions of the concepts that we have inherited in relation to uh, the use of force, their inter-public nature? Um, that that and and in a way, uh, again, the claim is not to say one is necessary in some transcendental sense that it must always be interpublic war that is privileged by the UN Charter, um, but it, I think it helps us examine better the stakes of the debate rather than have what I think are really ultimately fairly fruitless debates about what's the true the true meaning of the Charter, or uh, you know what has always been in, in the case of the law. I think what we need to be having rather is a relatively clear uh, uh, discussion about what's at stake in moving uh, sort of or stumbling from a uh, symmetrical Yossad Bellum framework to one that endorses asymmetrical, uh, an asymmetrical Yossad Bellum as a sort of permanent feature of the legal landscape. Rebecca, I don't know if you want to add anything to this before we uh, close off. No, that's great. I'm looking forward to to questions and for to the discussion as well. Great, thank you very much. Thank you very much both.